Well, good morning again. It's good to see you this morning. Happy Father's Day. I love being a dad. My youngest daughter came with me this week. Kessage, she's hanging out with me this morning. Our family's a little scattered today. My wife flew to Kansas City yesterday to be with her grandma for a week to take care of her while her mom and dad, who normally take care of her grandma, just flew into Nashville about 10 minutes ago and are heading towards our house so they can pick up my kids to go to the beach for the week. So we're scattered all over the place. I thought, it's Father's Day, so I'm going to show you a picture of my kids. I think they've got a picture of my kids. There we go. That's my wife and my kids. Um, my oldest daughter is on my right, your left. That's Grace. She's about to be a senior in high school. Kessit is my youngest daughter. She's right there. She's about to be a freshman in high school. And then Haddon, our son, who's adopted from Lesotho, the kingdom of Lesotho. And uh, he's 14. He's a good kid. He's about to be an eighth grader. And then my wife and I have been married for... Um, just celebrated our 21st anniversary last month. Her name's Tracy. I want, as, as we started today, I wanted to tell you a story, true story, about my own dad. So I love my dad. My dad has been my hero my whole life. I, I joke and say one day when I grow up, I'm going to be like him. Uh, he was in Air Force. He was in the Air Force when I was growing up, and when I was 13, he retired from the Air Force to go into ministry. And, uh, but as much as I love my dad, and it's Father's Day, I'm thankful for him. Uh, there was a time in my life when my dad absolutely just crushed my dreams, like just took my dream and crushed it. See, I had this dream. This is a true story. I promise you all had a, uh, had a dream. It's, it's, it was sort of what I wanted to do with my life. And when you're a kid growing up, you know, you've got these ideas about what you want to do with your life. Some people want to be firemen. Some people want to be a policeman. Some people want to be a pro athlete, whatever the case might be. Well, I had this vocational desire, this dream of what I wanted to do with my life. And I, I used to read every book I could find on the topic, and I had little figurines in my room, and I mean, I was just, I was enamored with this idea, and my dad pulled me aside one day when he realized this was more than just like a passing sort of fascination, and just said, Micah, you can't do it. It's not in the cards, which sounds like an awful thing for a dad to do, to take his, you know, 11-year-old son or whatever it was, and just crush his dreams but the problem was what I wanted to do, what I really wanted to do was I really wanted to be a horse jockey. I wanted to race horses. <laughs> and my dad, it's a true story, I promise you all. At 11 years old, my dad said, Micah, you've already outgrown it, buddy. This is not in the cards for you. This is not, this is not gonna work. I mean, I'm six foot six, you know, and that's, uh, I was, as a 13 year old, I was, I hit six foot tall at like 13 years old. And so my dad was like, buddy, this is not going to work for you. And I love you. And so my dad was actually trying to do me a favor by crushing my dreams. You know, he was trying to help me. But dads are sort of like that, right? We are, this is Father's Day. We're thinking about dads. We're thinking about how dads love their families and how they shape their families. And one of the things that I think is a tragedy, I've been a pastor for most of the last 20 years. I've pastored, as a senior pastor, I pastored three churches and uh, I pastored small, tiny little rural churches out in the middle of nowhere in the country. I've pastored big mega churches in the middle of the city. And one thing is common at every church I've ever pastored, and that's that Mother's Day is going to be one of the biggest attended days of the year, and Father's Day is typically going to be one of the least attended days of the year. And part of that is because culturally we, we're at this point where there's a higher likelihood that mamas are going to love Jesus and push their family and their kids towards him than it's, than it's true about dads. And so today what I want us to do is I want us to look at Psalm 127. If you've got your Bible, Psalm 127, it's a very familiar psalm. It's only five verses long. But I want to talk to you about the idea that, that family is a blessing, the blessing of family. Family is a blessing. 
And, and it really, we're going to talk a little bit to dads today, but it really goes beyond dads. It goes to moms and dads and kids and uh, the whole nine yards. And as we get started, I do want to say this. Some of you don't have kids, maybe. Maybe you're a man or a woman and you wanted to have kids. You don't have kids. Maybe you're not married and you want to be married. And so Father's Day, Mother's Day, these sort of things can be hard for you. And I understand that. I think it's important to say this up front. Having a spouse is a blessing, having children is a blessing, and I'm gonna to get to that here in just a moment, but it is not necessary for either of those things to be present in your life for you to be full, fulfilled and complete. And culture will often tell you that that's not the case. The church will often sort of emphasize that you're not complete until you're married and you have children, and if that's the case, poor Jesus is out of luck, right? I mean, he's just this unfulfilled, deeply unsatisfied individual wandering around waiting for that woman to make him right. The truth of the matter is family and spouse and children are a blessing and I'm thankful for them in my life, but if you don't have them, it is absolutely possible for you to be deeply satisfied with the person of Jesus, for you to be incredibly fulfilled and for you to honor God with your life, even in the absence of those things. And I want you to hear me say that because often culture and even the church won't tell you that. So what I want us to do is I want to read together Psalm 127 as we begin. If you don't mind, I like to honor the reading of God's word by standing. And so let's stand together and read these five verses. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. In vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, offspring are a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons born in one's youth. Happy is the man who has filled his quiver with them. They will never be put to shame when they speak with their enemies at the city gate. Pray with me if you will. Jesus, we thank you for the privilege of walking through your word this morning. We thank you, God, for the privilege of considering how it is that you are forming us to be in your image. And Lord, your word tells us for those whom you knew you predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus. In other words, the destiny of every follower of Jesus is that they would be shaped into the image of Jesus. And so Lord, we pray that you would do that today for those who are fathers or mothers or children. Whatever our status is as we're gathered here this morning, we pray that you would take these five verses from Psalm 127 and you would use it to point our attention to Jesus, that our mind and our hearts, our affections would be turned toward Jesus and that we would leave this morning more like Jesus than when we came. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So this psalm is, uh, is part of a series of psalms. If you look in your Bible, it likely calls this a song of ascent. A song of ascent. These were a series of psalms that were intended to be sung as songs as pilgrims would be coming into the city of Jerusalem uh, to celebrate multiple festivals, uh, Passover among them. And so uh, they would be referred to as a psalm or a song of ascent for a couple of reasons. One, as you would walk into the old city of Jerusalem, there were a series of stairs that you would walk up, and as you stepped on e every step, you would repeat a new verse. But these songs would often be sung well before you even got into the city. I brought a picture to show you, uh, I'm going to pull this off, I brought a, sh a picture to show you, this was the last time I was in Israel, and I'm standing on the Mount of Olives looking across the city of Jerusalem, and, uh, oh, good, I'm glad you said that, thank you. Uh, this is standing up on top of the Mount of Olives looking across Jerusalem, you'll, uh, you'll notice the graveyard there below you, you walk through that graveyard, 
as you come down the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. A couple things that might grab your attention first as you see it. This is just sort of random trivia, but it's fascinating to me. You'll notice that every building in Jerusalem is built out of the exact same building material. That's by code. They're required to build it that way. They're not multicolored buildings in Jerusalem. Everything's the exact same color. It's the color of sand. It's intended to blend into the desert around it. But the other thing, I don't know if you can tell this, but if you'll notice, Jerusalem is elevated in comparison to everything around it. So it doesn't matter where you come from. If you come from uh, the Galilee region in the north, if you come from the Negev down in the south, wherever you come to come to Jerusalem, you have to come up into Jerusalem. So you'll see in the scripture where people say, let us go up to Jerusalem, because you're always ascending in order to get into the city of Jerusalem. And I wanted to show you this sort of to help reinforce the idea of what's happening here. So these, I think I turned this off. Is it on? There we go, okay. So these songs of ascent would be sung by the pilgrims as they were coming into Jerusalem to prepare for these festivals such as, uh, such as the Passover. And they would sing these songs together as they would ascend up into Jerusalem. And this particular song, this particular psalm, is intended to be by Solomon as wisdom, general wisdom about our families, but it has sort of a, a double meaning in the text. It's true about our families, but it was also intended to be a statement about Jerusalem and the temple. The, 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 the Solomon, as he was authoring this, unless the Lord builds the house, that's a reference to the temple, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, that's a reference to Jerusalem. Uh, the watchman stays alert in vain. And so they would be singing this about their own families personally as they collectively gathered with the people of Israel ascending up into Jerusalem, declaring this to also be true about the, the holy city, the city of Jerusalem where the temple was and that they would begin to practice sort of the, the festivals together. All right, so with that as sort of the backdrop, let's begin to walk into the text together. And I wanna show you four characteristics uh, as we think about our own family and as we think about our own children, four characteristics of what it means to think of our families as a blessing. First, in verse one, notice that our families are in fact a gift from the Lord. They're a gift from God. The passage begins by pointing out that God has to be at the center of all of our efforts. We can labor, we can work to build the house, but unless the Lord does it, it's sort of useless or pointless. The second part of the verse, we are going to be watchmen who stay up to care for our family, who, to, who stay up to preserve our family, to protect, but unless the Lord is in the midst watching over it, we stay alert in vain. The, the point here is that having and leading a family will require labor and care and diligence, but that our labor must be centered in God himself. It must be a God-centered labor or else our efforts are pointless. Our labor can become God-centered. Our care and, uh, and, and provision can become God-centered when the goal is the glory of God and when the desired outcome is a family that loves God with all their heart. My wife and I pray together every evening, every night, nearly without fail. And we don't pray a lengthy series of prayers together, but we pray almost the exact same prayer every night. We pray that our children and ourselves would sleep well and that we would rest well and we would wake well in the morning. But we pray that the following day would be a day to draw us closer to Jesus, make us more like his image, and teach us to love him more 
than anything else, than any other day prior to this has ever accomplished in our lives. We pray that we would love God more and that we would be more like him than at any other point in our lives. It's, it's almost a ritualistic prayer, but it's intended to be sort of formation or formative in our lives to remind us that the single greatest thing we do as parents and spouses and people is to center our focus on the Lord himself. And trust me, there's a lot of other things we worry about. We worry about budgets and paying bills, and we worry about, I mean, I have three teenage children, two of which are teenage daughters, and dumb boys are in the equation. And, and trust me, by the way, I learned this not long ago, that, that men, you know, that their brains don't fully form until they're 25 years old, which explains so much to me. So when I say that boys are dumb, I'm being technical in that sense. They're, they really are. But they're always hanging around like gnats around my daughters, and my daughters are attracted to the gnats, and it's a problematic. So I, we've got all these issues in our life, right, that we're sort of having to deal with. But while these things are significant, and while they take our time, and while they take our attention, the single greatest thing that should captivate us is how we, how we center our families on the glory and the goodness of God and how we raise up our families to love him with all their heart and to be formed into his image. So in other words, if we're going to father our families well, if we're going to parent our families well, if we're going to engage in family life well, we have to labor. We work hard as we serve and we lead our families. But this is so incredibly important with respect to our families, but it's important with respect to the larger Christian experience. We don't labor in order to earn God's favor. We don't work hard so that God will deem our effort worthy and bless us in response. This is so incredibly important. So I grew up uh, with a mom and a dad who loved Jesus deeply, but like a lot of folks, got sort of sucked into fundamentalism uh, early in, 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 in my life and in our Christian experience. And so for me, growing up, uh, our Christian experience was full of a lot of laws, rules, and God's happy with us when we obey the laws, and God's happy with us when we obey the rules, but he's not if, if we don't do well. And so what this did is it formed in me this sort of performative understanding or expectation that my job, my responsibility, is to be a good Christian little boy who becomes a, a good Christian little man, right, who does all of the right things, and when I do the, the right things, God responds by blessing me. And we teach this all the time. I talked about it last week. We, I call it a softened version of the prosperity gospel. We talk about it with America. If America will just turn back to the Lord, God will bless us, which is this sort of implicit idea that God will scratch your back if, if you'll scratch ours. Baked into that is this theology that our performance is what earns God's approval. And I think we do this with our families. God, I'm going to work hard with my kids, and I'm going to read the Bible to them, and I'm going to pray, but your job is to pony up by making sure that they're good people who obey the rules and do all the right things and love God. But I want you to hear me say, sometimes we love God deeply, and we raise our kids to love God deeply, and they run away from him as fast as they can go. Because they're humans who have volition and have to determine for themselves whether or not they're going to love Jesus. They're not automatons. They're not robots. And sometimes you can lead your kids to love Jesus, but they don't. And sometimes you can be an abysmal example of a parent and your kids can somehow find Jesus and be formed into his image. We call that grace. God is good in the midst of our failures to form our kids. The outcome is not necessarily our responsibility. In many ways, it's like sharing the gospel. It's not your job, it's not my job to cause anybody to believe in Jesus. Our job is so incredibly simple. It's just to tell others about the Gospels, to tell others what Jesus has done, and the results are God's business. Now, that's really 
easy for us to think about when it comes to just sharing the gospel with a random stranger. It's difficult. It's painful when it comes to thinking about our own children. We want this sort of guarantee that if we'll just do the right things, if we'll have our kids in church, if we'll teach our kids to to follow him, and if we'll read the Bible to him, and if we'll pray regularly as a family, we want this guarantee that if we'll do those things, God will make sure that good things happen for us, but it's not always that way. David was a man after God's own heart. I mean, there's no one else in Scripture who carries that designator, and yet Solomon ran away from the Lord as he got older in life. Solomon ran far from the Lord, abandoned him, married all these women, invited all these foreign gods into his life. And yet this is coming from David, the one who was so repentant and, and imaged the Lord himself. You and I have got to understand that our labor is necessary to raise our families well, but our, our labor does not guarantee somehow our understanding of God's favor. We don't work our way into God's good graces. We need to understand that our labor with respect to our family or even our own walk with God is rooted in God's favor, not intended to garner it. In other words, we work diligently for the Lord because we have his favor, not in an effort to gain his favor. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 has been so formative for me. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That text, and this is significant, that text points out to us that God never punishes his children. I want you to think about this for a second. God never punishes his children. There are times when he disciplines his children, but he doesn't punish his children. So what's the difference? Discipline is forward-looking. It's corrective in nature. It's to, to say to us, you've made a mistake, but I want to show you the right thing to do. Punishment is to make us wear the reward for our bad behavior. God doesn't ever cause us to wear the reward of our bad behavior. Why not? Because if he did, it would, de- it would deny the efficacy of the cross. If Jesus punished us for our sin, those of us who are followers of Jesus, it would deny the work of Jesus on the cross. It would be as if God was saying to us, well, you need Jesus on the cross to be a follower of Christ, but then you also need to bear the stripes yourself. But that's not the case. Jesus on the cross, he declared what? He said, it is finished. It's over. I've borne all the weight of all the wrath of God on the cross so that you are able to be fully satisfied in him. And so when you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ, when we choose to follow him, we experience something that theologians refer to as imputed righteousness. What that means is that the righteousness of Jesus is transferred to us. We are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. And then what happens when we stand in front of God someday at the judgment seat, God doesn't say to us, did you do well? Did you do right? Instead, God looks at us and he doesn't see us at all. He sees Jesus covering us. We are in this moment. Some of you had a rough morning this morning. Some of you pulled into the parking lot yelling at your kids or arguing with your spouse. And I know what you did. You said, all right, that's enough. Everybody stop, smile. It's time to walk into church. Some of you are laughing because that hit home, right? It's okay. We've got to, the truth of the matter is, the beauty of the gospel is that in that moment, right as you're yelling at your spouse, that God's grace, favor, and his affection for you is as great in that moment as the moment when you are doing everything you're supposed to do as a follower of Jesus Christ. Our behavior does not earn God's favor or God's affection or God's grace in any tangible way. We are at every moment already fully 
um, loved by God and experiencing his grace in a way that cannot be heightened by our performance. How does that, first of all, we need to understand that in our own walk with Jesus because that means that we don't walk around all the time scared that we've done something wrong and God's going to make us pay. We are able to do the right thing because we know that God is already deeply satisfied with us. In other words, there's no risk of failure. We can live our lives for the glory of God, not having to worry about whether we're going to fail because if we do fail, we don't lose his goodness. We don't lose his grace. We don't lose his favor. We don't lose his love and affection. So it frees us to live lives of righteousness and holiness. But how does that then translate into our own lives with our family? It reminds us that even as we fail as parents, God still deeply loves us, that God loves our children more than he loves us, our, uh, more than we love our children, that even if we have momentary failures in our own experience with our children, that God's grace is good and it's consistent, but it's also a reminder to us that our work, our effort, is no guarantee of the end result. Dallas Willard has said, and I love this quote, it's one of my all-time favorite quotes, Grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. Grace fuels our effort as fathers and mothers and parents and followers of Christ, but it does not somehow earn God's goodness. Our effort does not earn God's goodness. Sometimes you can love Jesus and love your kids and things just don't go as you intended. It's not punishment from God. It's not a result of a lack of faith on your part. We're called to work hard for our family, but our labor has to be rooted in a proper understanding of both God and grace. The second thing I want you to see in the text is this that God loves your family more than you do. Look at verse 2. In vain you get up early and you stay up late working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. We also, though, we're going to struggle with our kids at times. There's no worry quite like the worry of a parent worrying over their children. I know that worry. And yet worry is something that Scripture teaches us is not okay for those of us who are followers of Jesus, right? Worry is not, our, our, uh, is not what's expected of us. Philippians chapter 4 Beginning in verse 6, don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That means we don't worry about our children. That means we don't worry about our job. That means some of you don't need to worry about the Hawks. You know, game seven coming up. Sorry, Mitch, I was just, that was pointed at you, man. <laughs> we don't need to worry about UGA or in my case, I didn't tell you guys this last week, but I am a Gator fan. I'm sorry about that. Don't hate me for it. Go Gators. Um, we don't worry about those things, right? Why? Because our confidence, our hope, our trust is in Jesus. The Bible says worry doesn't add anything to our lives, which is true. In fact, all it does is subtract from our lives. All it does is take from us. So how do we not worry? How do we rest when it comes to our family? Because there's no worry quite like the worry of a parent for their children. We're reminded in this text that no matter how hard we work or how much time we invest, it is in vain unless our work is centered in the Lord. And for those of us who are trusting in him, we can rest in him and in his care for our family because he's a better provider and a better caretaker than we are. Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. Who among you, if your son asked you for bread, would give him a stone? Or if they asked you for a fish, would give him a snake? If you then, who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your, heaven, uh, will your, will your Father in heaven good, give good things to those who ask him? And you say, wait a minute, why does he say we're evil? Because we're all bound up in sin. All of us who are followers of Jesus, all of us who are part of the human experience, we have sin, right? We deal with this sin nature. 
In other words, he says, if you who have to struggle with sin and fight against sin, if you even know how to give good gifts to your children, then how is it that your Father in heaven, who is perfect and righteous and loving, how much more do you think he's going to bless those whom he loves? That's exactly what verse 2 is trying to get at here. He's saying, look, I know that you're going to get up early and you're going to stay up late. You're going to work hard to provide for your families. But understand that God has to be at the center of that work. If he's not, then we've missed out. And if he is, then we can trust him because he loves our family more than we do. Our children are incredibly valuable. I'm realizing this. It's, it's, I've always been, I'm a numbers guy. I used to work for Lifeway Research and Ed Stetzer up in Nashville, and we would we do all these uh, research projects researching the state of the evangelical church in the U.S. and that sort of thing, and I love numbers. I'm a numbers fanatic. I quantify everything with numbers. And so I remember when my oldest daughter was nine years old. I'm about to terrify a few of you in the room. When my oldest daughter was nine years old, I leaned over to my wife and I said, do you know she's halfway done with her time in our house? my wife slapped me. She's like, shut up. I don't want to talk about that. But it occurred to me that I realized at nine years old, she is, she's halfway there. And I'm always constantly sort of assessing our lives based on numbers. I've got five years left until all of my kids are graduated from high school and out of the home. And I like to feel like I'm young. I feel like I got married the other day. I got, you know, graduated from college the other day. But the truth of the matter is I'm going to be 43 here soon. And my kids are all teenagers and, and it's almost done. And this sort of magnifies the older I get, how valuable my children are and how little time I have left with them. And I want to constantly sort of manage all of their lives. And if I'm not careful, I micromanage. My kids tell me that all the time. Mike, Dad, we're good kids. Why are you constantly trying to manage everything? It's because I love them and I realize there's not a whole lot of time left. But this text reminds me that while my responsibility is to lovingly serve my family and to invest everything I have in them, ultimately my responsibility... <coughs> excuse me, is to remember that I'm just a manager of God's good gifts, that my family is ultimately his family. It's not mine first and foremost, that it's his, that he loves them more than I do, that he feels more responsibility for, for them than I do. When we parent or we make decisions for our family out of fear instead of trusting in God and parenting out of that confidence, we end up raising children who live their lives embracing fear and they know little about the freedom and grace of Jesus. And most of all, they have very little understanding and commitment to the sovereignty of God. When we make all of these decisions out of fear and trepidation, we teach our kids that the world is to be feared and scared, we're to be scared of it. Instead of trusting in Him and demonstrating to our children what it looks like to believe that God is good and that God is enough. Not only do we struggle, however, to give our children to the Lord because of our fears, we also struggle to give our children to the Lord because of our flawed expectations. Some of us are living our lives through our children. Our children's future is in the hands of God alone. Too many of us work, work diligently to craft our kids' lives into the image that we desire it to be. And when we do so, we're guilty, again, of failing in our attempt to raise children in the image of Jesus. In fact, if we're not careful, raising children in the image we desire of them can lead us to train our children to be raised in our image instead of Jesus' image. And not only that, when we try to manipulate the future for our families, we often connect our satisfaction to the fulfillment of our desire for their future. In other words, you can't be satisfied unless your kids become what you want them to be. And this means that you have taken your children and you've turned them into idols. They've become the idols you worship, rather than worshiping at the feet of Jesus and trusting Jesus to form your children. 
Sarah Young said, I detest idolatry even in the form of parental love. She's absolutely right. Third thing I want you to see in the text. Children are a blessing and not a curse. Verse 3, sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord. They're, uh, your offspring are a, a reward. In our culture today, we not only off, uh, do not often recognize children as a gift from the Lord. We can often even view them as a curse in our lives. How many times have you heard someone say to, to another person, man, I love your kids, and the other person's response is, well, you want them? You can have them. And I know we're joking, but can you imagine a five-year-old, a four-year-old hearing that and thinking, man, I just kind of aggravate my parents all the time. We're diminishing the reality that our children are a gift from the Lord. In fact, the Bible seems to indicate that outside of salvation, that children are almost the greatest gift that God can give to a culture. And this is not just true of moms and dads, it's, it's true of all of us, that children are a gift to us that we are to collectively steward or manage for the glory of God and the good of humanity. Our responsibility is to recognize our children as a blessing, to praise God for our family, and to treat them as a blessing. As believers in Christ, it is incredibly discouraging, not to mention hypocritical, when we fight diligently, passionately for the unborn life, but then we diminish or even ignore the same life once it becomes an, an annoying and at times inconvenient child. As followers of Christ, our responsibility is to steward children. Ephesians 6.4 is one of those texts that aggravates me. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and wisdom of the Lord. I know my wife quotes this to me on occasion when I'm picking at my kids and I'm aggravating them. <laughs> she says, my kids, knock it off. We're to treat children as great gifts, blessings, whom we have the responsibility of pointing to Jesus and raising them to live for the glory of God. The fourth and final thing I want you to see in the text is this. Children are ultimately a part of our legacy, verses 4 and 5. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the sons born in one's youth. Happy is the one who has filled his quiver with them. They will never be put to shame when they speak with their enemies at the, at the city gate. As the chapter closes, we see these statements about arrows and warriors. The author's using an analogy that would have been familiar with his audience. Warriors would use arrows to protect the gates of the city where the city elders would sit. And the, the gates of the city where the city elders would sit was where all of the significant decisions regarding the city were made. In other words, he's saying, when you raise your children to love Jesus, it secures the future. It protects the future of society and civilization. This is why what we do with our children matters so much. You've all heard the quote from Abraham Lincoln, what one generation does in moderation, the next would do in excess. What we do in moderation, our children will sort of run toward. And this ought to be formative in our own lives as we think about how our own lives bring glory to God and are lived with God at the center, how we raise our children to do the same. In much the same way, the author is pointing out that children are the heritage of their families and protect, they are then able to protect and preserve their families for years to come. This doesn't just mean that your kids take care of you when you're old, though that is part of this. It means that the safeguard for a culture is to raise our children as valuable gifts from the Lord who are centered around the person of Jesus Christ. The Lord is trying to emphasize how important it is for us to have a right understanding of children, recognizing them as valuable gifts from God and desiring them as a result. As we close, I want to give you three truths from generally uh, theological truths from Scripture about how God thinks about families and children. First, Jesus loved children. This was particularly remarkable in his day because children were essentially worthless. In the first century, children and women had very little worth. Your worth only, and this is true by the way, when my wife and I were missionaries in West Africa, this was always interesting to me, there was no word in our, in our language for pretty. 
When I wanted to tell, you know, I'd see a little girl say, oh, you're so pretty, I'd have to switch to French to say that to them. It was a Francophone country because there was no word. Why? Because in their culture, the only way a person had value was if they were able to bear children and work in the fields. It was very similar to a first century context where women, basically, their only value was to procreate and children had no value until they were old enough to be able to contribute to the, to the, to the good of the family. What's sad is we sort of live in a culture like that today. People have value for what they can do. And by the way, we're, we do the same thing. We treat people as having diminishing value based on what they can do or not do. If you agree with me, if you think like I do, then you have value, but if you disagree with me, you are to be crushed and destroyed. That's sort of inherently teaching that people have greater or lesser value based on their ideals. We see it right now in countries that have all but eliminated children with Down syndrome. I saw it celebrated in an article not long ago. Uh, one of the, the, the countries, Denmark, Finland, Sweden, somewhere in that part of the world, was being celebrated because Down syndrome had been eliminated in that culture. What they don't tell you is that they had eliminated it by identifying children in the womb with Down syndrome and aborting those children. We do the same in the U.S. to some degree. What are we doing in that moment? We're saying that the children don't have inherent value because they're created in the image of God, but rather they have value because of what they're able to contribute to society. Ultimately, that's the same sort of ideology that fueled Nazi Germany and, and communist Russia. Your value is what you're able to provide rather than the fact that your value is simply because you're created in the image of God. And this is true whether you're Christian or Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu. Now, I believe in the exclusivity of Jesus, and I want all people to follow Jesus, and I believe there's difficulty. Eternal ramifications if they don't, but that, that doesn't mean that I don't love them or value them even and when they do disagree with me. I love my Muslim friends. I disagree with them, and they disagree with me, but I love them whether they agree with me or not because they're created in the image of God. They're inherently valuable and have great worth. Jesus loved children. That was countercultural in his day. Secondly, God models his love for children as he calls us and adopts us into his family. Have you ever thought about the fact that God loves us so much that he purchased us twice, first by birth and second by adoption? God secured us twice by first of all creating us and then when we ran away from him by sending his own son to die on the cross so that we might be then adopted into his family. That is an immense love. The third and final thing I would say is that we are then commanded to care for children, particularly orphans, in the way that God loves and cares for us. James 1.27, true, pure and undefiled religion before God is this, that we look after orphans and widows and their distress. This is the way we demonstrate the love that God has for us. So as we think about Father's Day and as we wrap up this message, I would encourage you to recognize that God gives us families as a gift to steward for his glory. And there's no guarantee that your hard work will be rewarded with what you want in the end, but that's okay because our responsibility is to steward and trust, to steward our families to love Jesus, and to rest in the goodness of God in our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the privilege of following you. We thank you for the privilege of being made in your image. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be men and women who love Jesus and live our lives to, to literally, as the scripture says, do all things for the glory of God. And that even means raising our children and stewarding our families. Lord, I pray that that would be true of us this Father's Day. Lord, we love you and we pray that our lives, our families, our children, our spouses, would demonstrate to others the goodness and glory of God. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.